Hi, welcome to church today. The message you're about to listen to came from a recent gathering at our church. Be encouraged as you enjoy this message. And as was customary now, we say to you, David, you have full brevity to speak what the Lord has said to you. Okay. Mm-hmm. I ask, Lord, that you give us again today a teachable spirit. I rebuke everything in the atmosphere that would speak otherwise to the word of God. As your son pours out, Lord, we ask that you would pour back into him. We bless him, Lord, and we cover him and his family in the coming week in the name of Jesus. No weapon formed or fashioned against them shall prosper, and any and every tongue that's risen up against them in judgment, we condemn it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I've got one of these. Is this the mic? Thank you, Gosha. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for the worship, David and and um, and others, Denise and Liz. Mm-hmm. Just, yeah. Cool. Thank you. Um, so interesting, isn't it? Because the Lord gave me a word, and I was like, "Lord, that's is that from you? Is that from you? You know?" And, I, and He gave me a passage, and I was like, "Really? Is that really from you?" Um, <laughs> and then. Now I've seen why he's given me it um, during this morning's worship. So, Happy New Year, guys. Rosh Hashanah. Um, five, seven, eight, four. I spent a couple of minutes listening to Cindy Jacobs this morning and her Rosh Hashanah word, and I'd, I'd recommend it, her, her encouragement. And she was talking about this being a year of doors and gates and um, going through a year of moving into the new. And this year does hold much promise for us as a fellowship and as individuals. But she also talked about how there's things we need to leave behind as we move into the new, um, things that we have to take off and leave uh, behind us. And, um, and also, I think, um, as I was preparing this, it's about a fresh perspective, a reminder of the freedom that we walk in in the Lord. They're, they're the things that has, have really been on my heart. Um, so... Um, in the summer, Philip and I went to Greece for a week. We were really fortunate to go to Greece on our own, the first time in like 22 years that we'd had a whole day on our own, which was kind of nice. And we went to this small town called Methoni, which is, is on the coast on the Peloponnese, for those people who know Greece. And Methoni is, as I say, small. There's a, there's a couple of small kind of family-run, um, I wouldn't call them supermarkets, that would be a definite exaggeration. Um, they're kind of shops, I suppose. And there's a few other places, as restaurants and such. Um, but before I went, I looked on TripAdvisor Methoni, and um, the, the, the indication that it was small was that really, actually, on TripAdvisor, there was really only one, one particular tourist thing to see, and that was this place called Methoni Castle. And Methoni Castle is kind of, there's the town there, and then on the end of the town, kind of with the sea on either side of it, there's this, what was a castle, a, a kind of few acres of land, with a, which now has a wall around it and a lot of kind of grass and some ruins in the inside of it. And Philip and I went to look around this castle, and um, we read a bit of the history of the castle, and I became fascinated because this castle was built by the Venetians in the 13th century as a, because it was a valuable kind of port in which to stop between places. And um, I became fascinated because it was actually conquered in 1500 by the Turks, and uh, they besieged this castle. And... Um, I wondered what it would be like, what it would have been like, standing there in the middle of this kind of patch of ground, which was probably about 20 acres altogether, I think it is. Um, you know, so not a huge patch of ground for lots of people to be in, with lots of buildings that were once there. I wondered what it would have been like to be in that siege, you know, to be in that place of, uh, where, where the, your seat besieged. And indeed, the siege was broken, and the Turks did, did conquer it in August 1500. But I was thinking about what, what is it like to live with, in a small walled town with hostile forces all around. 
I started imagining this kind of confinement because Greece is quite hot in the blazing heat with diminishing supplies and the hope of rescue receding. And I started to think about how, as human beings, we, we act when we're under siege. And we, we think about siege, we think about limited resources, constraints, life becoming about our limitations and our survival and the fear of the hostile en enemy beyond the walls. Every decision made in a siege is a decision against a backdrop of fear. And in a siege, the walls of our defences become the limits of our perspective. Everything becomes close at hand. You can't go up on those walls, because if you go up on the walls, the enemy's going to shoot you, right? So, so the walls become the limits of what we can see. And I was thinking about the church in Britain as a whole. And, you know, as Christians in an increasingly secular culture, we often feel like the church is under siege from, our, from the surrounding culture. And um, if we were to kind of broadly examine um, churches and how denominations have kind of acted in relation to this, we could probably, if we were to say, give the analogy of the city, we could say that churches have, that there's, there's different types of churches, but a lot of churches have gone into one of two different places when it comes to their relationship with the surrounding culture. We've got one type who have gone, actually, we're like a city, they're like a city without a wall. So anyone can come in, anyone can go out, they can do whatever they like. You know, there's, there's nothing much um, that, um, that makes the church distinctive from that society. There are some, some, some um, denominations that have gone that way. And then there are other denominations that have, have become like walled cities and they've got a, a big wall around them, you know, and they're defending against this onslaught of, of culture with an increasingly limited resource. And, um, and this type of Christianity kind of makes, makes, it kind of makes Christian culture like a subculture in which, you know, in which um, it has no influence on the rest of culture. Indeed, neither of these views bear, bear, give a lot of influence to the rest of society. And there's been a lot of books written and a lot of time taken um, thinking about how Christians relate to culture, how the church can relate to culture. And this has happened for decades. I mean, I was thinking about it the other day. Do you remember when the Da Vinci Code came out? Do you remember that? I think 25 different theologians wrote books about the Da Vinci Code. I mean, they should have just all got together and written one book and had the end of it, really. But, they, but, you know, so many people got, like, very kind of edgy about the Da Vinci Code. And, like, who even reads it now, right? Um, <clears throat> but this, this kind of reactiveness has, stump, has, has been, has been the, the, you know, the rea reactively stumbling against culture, one situation to the next, over decades. And... Um, so you have the two views of the church that I've presented. You've got the besieged church and you've got the church which has actually just given up and it's been conquered, right? Okay. And as individuals as well, and this is where I was, I was like, this is really interesting what happened this morning, you know, and the things that were broken this morning. Because as individuals as well, we can feel under siege from the enemy. And siege for us, I think, comes, is what I would call a mindset of limitation. Is the enemy influencing our, our thinking and seeking to wear us down through persistent nagging, through pressure put upon us, through coming against us in our thought life, creating a mindset of limitation. And so walls grow around our thinking and we can't get up on those walls to look over the, to the horizon because the enemy threatens to shoot us down. The enemy declares to us, you mustn't say this, you can't say that, you mustn't do this, you mustn't do that. So how do we come against this? Well, a friend of mine said that the trouble is with a mindset is that it's a mind which is set. Yeah? And that's kind of true. A mindset is like a paradigm. It's like a pair of glasses through which we interpret everything. And I don't know some of you wear glasses. Have you ever had that thing when you're wearing a, your pair of glasses and, and, and you go, oh, I can't find my glasses anyway, but actually you're wearing them. Have you ever had that? It's a, it's a strange one, isn't it? But, but, it's, but the thing is... That's what, that's what we're like when it comes to our mindset. We think that, we, that we're, we're not being influenced and that we've, our reality is our reality, but it's our glasses that we wear that make our reality look like what it is. You know, And so we don't see the idea of the mindset quite often because we just think of it as our reality. I teach um, critical thinking um, to the sixth formers here now, and I'm really pleased about that. Um, and um, it's really, really good because they think that their worldview is just, 
it, that is just reality, but actually it's only their worldview, and helping them understand that is a lot of fun. Um, and you can bring some real idols down kind of quite quickly, I think. The thing is, we get to choose, don't we? We get to choose whether we, whether we have a heavenly perspective or an earthly perspective. You know, and an earthly perspective, by definition, has a horizon. I'm a painter, I paint and draw things, you know, I teach painting. If I look out there, the first thing I would do when I'm teaching painting, if I wanted to get them to draw the cityscape, would be find the line of the horizon. Because everything's either above the horizon or below the horizon. That's how it works. Yeah, our, our horizon is our limitation. It's all we can see. So if we're setting our minds on earthly things, we immediately have this limitation of the earth. But the Bible tells us in Colossians 3.2 to set our mind on heavenly things where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And as we go up higher, our perspective changes. You know, if you go up in a plane, you look, up, you look down upon the earth and your perspective is very, very different. And as we go up to, to a heavenly place, I just ask you, does God have limits? The Bible tells us that, you know, the Lord is in all, you know. He's, he, he's, um, he fills all in all. He's the creator and the sustainer of the whole universe. So we turn our eyes towards him and the things on earth grow strangely dim. But the thing is, guys, that when we turn our eyes back towards the earth, so often we flick back into the mindset of the earth again and... And uh, we think out of our physical circumstances through the place where we get used to thinking of them. And I, I, I think that the enemy has tried to put limitations on us as a fellowship over and over again. And I was prepare, as I was preparing this message, there was one particular thing that I think the Lord wanted me to touch on. And that is this thing of discouragement. Yeah, And discouragement, I've talked about it before a little bit, and I'm not going to unpack it hugely, hugely, but discouragement is where the enemy takes something and limits our view. And the trouble with this discouragement, have you ever been discouraged? Anyone here never been discouraged? Right, okay, we've, we all know what discouragement is like, don't we? We know that it affects the level of faith that we bring to something. You know, when we're discouraged, our faith just kind of goes through the floor. Then we start saying things, and we know that words have power because we've been taught that for, like, decades. Um, you know, we start saying things that we don't actually own. But they go out into the atmosphere, and then the enemy goes, oh, I got him. You know, I can hear that. Because the enemy cannot hear your thought life, but the enemy can hear when you speak, right? Okay, so then you're, then you're kind of making ground for the enemy, and it makes us jump to conclusions or it moves us from a position of faith to a position of doubt. And it's like it can come in just so quickly and just go, whoosh, and you're like, oh, my gosh, where did that come from, you know? Mm -hmm. So we lose perspective when we're discouraged. And we do daft things that we'd never do if we weren't discouraged. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the reality of how discouragement works. And as, I, as we look at this idea of discouragement, I'm going to actually go to a passage of scripture that I don't believe I've ever heard spoken about, you know, and I, I did wonder why the Lord gave it to me, but it was 2 Kings 7, so if you want to turn to 2 Kings 7, that's kind of um, good. As I read it, I did know why the Lord gave it to me, by the way. <clears throat> You'll be reassured to know. But 2 Kings 7 comes after 2 Kings 6. Yeah, and in that chapter, what happens is, yeah, yeah, in 2 Kings 6... Samaria, the capital of Israel, has been surrounded and besieged by the king of Aram, a guy called Ben-Hadad. The siege has evidently lasted a while until, until a donkey's head, which is an unclean animal, is sold for 80, 80 shekels of silver. That's kind of like, I don't know, is, is it half a kilo of silver or a kilo of silver? It's quite a lot of silver. So a donkey's head was sold for 80, 80 shekels of silver. And worse is yet to come in 2 Kings 6 because it has this story of horrendous cannibalism, which is then recounted to the king. I'm not going to read that part to you. You'll have to read background read it. And you can imagine the king hearing this story of one of the subjects who, who, who resorts to cannibalism and being so discouraged and appalled. And in, in response, he, he, he seeks to take Elijah's, Elisha's head off because he blames him for this siege. So he sends an officer around to behead Elijah. Elisha, sorry. And he, and he himself follows behind. 
And that's where 2 Kings 7 starts. We have Elisha's response to the king. Let's read from verse 1, I think, to verse 4. Then Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says, says the Lord, Tomorrow about this time, a measure of finely milled flour will sell for a shekel, and two measures of barley will, will, for a shekel at, at the gate of Samaria. Then the royal officer on whose arm the king leaned answered the man of God and said, If the Lord should make windows in heaven for the rain, could this thing take place? Elijah said, Behold, you will see it with your own eyes, but because you doubt it, you will not eat of it. Now four men who were lepers at the entrance to the city gate um, were at the entrance of the city gate, and they said to one another, Why should we sit here until we die? If we say we will enter the city, then the famine is in the city and we will die there. If we sit here, we will also die. So now come, let us go over to the camp of the Arameans. If they let us live, we will live. And if they kill us, we will only die. It's a strange story, isn't it? Really weird. And it gets weirder. Um, <clears throat> you know, and don't, don't, I'm not calling us a bunch of lepers, by the way, just so you know. <clears throat> um, but there's four, three particular things I want to draw out from this story. And the first is about perspective. You know, we have, we have um, perspective here presented here. We see four perspectives of people in this passage that I've just read. First of all, the king, we know from the end of chapter 6, was discouraged, and that means he was without courage. He had no hope. And he blamed Elisha for the siege. So the king has no hope. Okay, then you have Elisha, and he's, he's sitting with a group of elders, and, the, you know, here's, here's him coming, and he kind of tells them to barricade the door so that he doesn't lose his head, and then he gives this prophecy. And his prophecy just seems unbelievably freeing, because he says, you know, although, guys, you've been buying donkeys' heads from each other for, like, a, a lot of silver, 80 shekels of silver, this time tomorrow you're going to be buying, you know, finely milled flour, for one shekel, you know, you're going to buy, you're going to buy it so cheap. And um, so Elisha prophesies freedom in this place which looks like there is no freedom. And then the third perspective we see is that of the commander. Yeah, the commander mocks it. He mocks the prophecy. He says, uh, as if, you know, if God, owned, if, if God even just opened the windows of heaven and rained down, would there even be enough seed to do this thing? You know, so he mocks Elisha's prophecy. And then lastly, we have the lepers. We've got these four lepers who are kind of sitting in the city gate. Interesting that lepers are sitting in the place of influence. Um, but they're sitting in the city gate, and their attitude is like, well, we might as well just go out to the, to the Arameans, you know, because we're going to die here, so we might as well do that or do this. So we're going to do that. So, so um, they're the four, four perspectives we see. Now, what's the perspective we see on the current situation that we see at CCF, I wonder? You know, um, I think that our thinking has been coloured with discouragement by two things. Two things. One is that we're stuck in a, in a room on the third floor of a building in Clapham Junction, you know, and it's quite a small room. Yeah, I'm going to say it, say, say it like it is. Um, and the other is that there are fewer people here than there used to be. Yeah, there are two things, yeah. So I'm going to deal with both of those this morning or this afternoon. Um, firstly, numbers. The Lord has a lot to say in Scripture about numbers. We know that, you know. In Gideon's time, think about it. He had 32,000 soldiers. That, that, he, he had 32,000 soldiers. But because, but because, because the Lord didn't want them to take, to take the um, credit and the glory... He whittled them down to 300 people. Can you imagine Gideon's, how Gideon felt about that? I mean, really, you know, Lord, you know, I've got 32,000 soldiers, and that's not enough probably, but now I've got 300. I mean, how does that work? You know, so we need to realize that the Lord does victory by few. Yeah, he brings victory by, by few. It always is the case, you know. It's always the case. Deji, a couple of weeks ago, talked about Abraham. You know, Abraham was a single guy. He became a great nation, you know. He was, he was a guy with his wife, Sarah, and he didn't have kids, and yet somehow he became a great nation, you know. So God works through the individual, and he works through small numbers of people to bring his change, okay. And that's always been the case, you know. If you look at any revival in history, there are particular people who, who are involved, 
If you look at any awakening history, there are particular people who are involved. And we could talk about that all day. I know David would love to. Um, <laughs> he's got the heart for it, you know. Because if you understand what's gone before, you know that God can do it again, but in a different way. Never look to do the same thing God's done before. He's going to do it differently this time. Okay? Some people from CCF have moved on. Yeah? And do you know what? That's actually a really good thing. It's a really good thing. Because what we've done is we've blessed the wider church with people who have the DNA of the music and the message, the love walk. I mean, seriously, we've blessed the wider church. You know, some of these guys aren't going to rejoin us. But do you know what? That's how the gospel spreads. You know, that's how the gospel spreads. People go from one place to another and they carry what, what, what God has with them to sow it into other places. That's what happens, you know. That's what happens. The music and the message, the love walk, you know, these things, they're being sown in other places. Other people are experiencing them. And that's going to come, that's going to happen more and more, right? Other people are going to experience them. Although we've been squeezed in the last few months in terms of size, certainly, um, we, we, realize that what, we need to realise that what the, God, the Lord is actually doing among us and let him do more. I was thinking about Psalm 144, you know, praise be to the Lord, my rock and my great strength, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle, my steadfast loving kindness and my fortress, my high tower and my rescuer, my shield and him in whom I take refuge, who subdues my people under me. Praise be to the Lord, who trains my rock for war and my fingers, my, my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Yeah, that's what we heard this morning. Reducing our numbers means that we get to know each other better, you know. If we can't get to know each other better, then why do we need any more people to get to be here, you know, just to drift in and drift out? And I think that's one of the things that the Lord is doing. He wants to bring his people into oneness. Gosha shared about oneness earlier. And oneness isn't a kind of side note of the gospel. You know, we think of Jesus being crucified and resurrected and then somewhere, somewhere there's a bit of oneness going on. That's not how it works, because oneness is the very plan of, of Jesus, you know. And we, we, we talk about it, David talked about it, I think, last week, or certainly he mentioned John 17, where we have lots and lots of, you know, focus on the oneness that Jesus wants to bring. It's the very plan of God that Jesus wants to bring us into oneness. That's the reason that he died. That's the reason that he died, to bring us into oneness with him and into oneness with each other. To know each other according to the Spirit. To know, to know ourselves so that we know what the Spirit has given us that we can use in the building up of his kingdom together. Yeah. To know each other, that we know each other's gifts. Yeah. You know. Jewish New Year 5784. Let's remember that the Lord's plan is to bring people from all over, all together, so that they may be one. Amen. Ephesians 4, 4 to 6. There is one body of believers and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope, when you were called to salvation. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is sovereign over all and working through all and living in all. Yes. Years and years ago, do you know, I, I looked up, you know, that Galatians 3.28, we know it, you know. There is no Jew or Greek, slave nor free, you know. Um, do you know, Paul, Paul actually wrote 13 letters of the New Testament. Some people say he wrote Hebrews. I disagree personally, but that's my own little thing. I, don't, I can't prove it. Um, <laughs> but of the 13 that I definitely know he wrote, we definitely know he wrote, because Hebrews is the, the other one, of course. Of the 13 we definitely know he wrote, he writes about that nine times in 13 letters. It's not just Galatians 3.28. There's so many places where, where Paul is touching on this thing. And it's so important that we realise it, you know. And the reason it's important is because Paul goes on to talk in Ephesians 4 about the gifts and offices that different people hold in the church, all of which are used to shape, God uses to shape us into the oneness that he seeks. And then towards the end of that passage, verse 12 and 13, he says, He did this to, to fully equip and perfect the saints for works of service, to build up the body of Christ until we reach, all reach oneness in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. Growing spiritually to become a mature believer, reaching the measure, to the measure of the fullness of Christ. Yeah. Manifesting his spiritual completeness and exercising our spiritual gifts in unity. 
So the, the analogy Paul uses here is that the whole body of Christ becomes as one mature believer, one mature believer, who reaches the, the measure of the fullness of Christ. So, we, so while we're here, let's focus on Jesus and, and work on our oneness, encourage each other, step out, step out. Encourage how we flow in the gifts together so that there's no one on the edge. So that everyone's including and everyone's included and everyone has their part. Okay, another another passage I've never heard preached about is Romans 16, right? Have you ever heard a message on Romans 16? I mean, I could I could give a whole message here, but let me just touch on it now. There are 29 names in the beginning of Romans 16, Romans 16, 1 to 16. There are 29 names. And they're the names of people that Paul is greeting as he ends his letter. Okay, and... It starts with Phoebe, who is the, the, the woman who's actually delivering the letter to Rome, who he commends to the people at Rome, and she's called a deacon. Okay. Then we have, um, we, of the 29 names, we have 10 other women mentioned. Of those women, seven of them are in prominent roles to do with the church. Yeah. What, what's interesting is, in contrast, only three of the men are mentioned in terms of their roles in the church. Interesting. And then we have Priscilla and Aquila mentioned, or Prissa and Aquila. Yeah, and this is really interesting to me because Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned elsewhere in the book of Acts, aren't they? You know, we know that Paul meets them when he goes to Corinth. We know when that is as well because it says that Claudius, the emperor, had, 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 had um, made, made the um, Christians leave Rome. And we know that that happened from history in 49 AD. So in 50 AD, Paul is in Corinth and um, he... Um, he meets Priscilla and Aquila, and they're tent makers. They make their money through, through, their, through their leather work making tents, and uh, Paul is also a tent maker, so he goes and joins them, and they, and they kind of get to know each other. And then um, later on, they work in Ephesus, and now here we have Paul greeting them, having returned to Rome. So we see a lot here, and then we see that there's a church, it says, greet the church that meets in their house. So there's a church that meets in their house. That tells us about the structure of the church back in the day. Lots and lots of house churches made the church. You know, think about Ephesians. Sometimes we think that these churches were like a little group of believers of like, like 15 believers or something. The theologians think that the church in Ephesus grew to about 100,000 people. 100,000 people, yeah? So, so yeah, they were in cell groups or house churches, but, but um, you know, they, they, that was one aspect of it. But together, they were all the church as well. Interesting. Priscilla and Aquila, they're the people who go and talk to Apollos, if you remember, and, you know, show him the better way um, of Christ, you know. And now they're here running a house church in Rome. So that's interesting, you know. Then we have at least four, four names of slaves, Ampliatus, Urbanus, Statius, and Apelles. Um, and and Stachys, um, Paul refers to as beloved. So slaves are seen in the same, in, 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 without hierarchy, in the same way that people of high status are, are given. You know, he, he says he's beloved. Yeah. So Paul, that great apostle, has time to hang around with slaves, and you know they're they're really important to him. Then there are also women of high cultural status. The Trifema and Trifosa, sisters laboring in the Lord, you know. Those two women, they, they were probably sisters. Um, they might have been twins, maybe. But their, their names suggest high cultural status. So altogether in this place in Rome, there's this whole group of, of believers who are quite different from each other, meeting, you know, and encouraging each other in how to walk with Jesus. What Paul does in this list of, of believers is kind of that's in a sense he shows us the physical manifestation of what of his doctrine essentially. He talks about us all being one, but they're the actual people who are the one that he talks about at that time. And the church in Rome was radically one because Jesus' plan for his body is radical. It's radical. Okay? Think about it. We know it. You know, William Seymour, radical. You know, he was the second son of, I think, eight sons, eight kids, um, the founder of the Pentecostal movement, um, who was born into a family of emancipated slaves, completely poor, 
you know, nothing, nothing much. He, his church, you know, the church that he was involved in when, as you know, in Azusa Street, he was, he encouraged women to be involved. He encouraged white people to be involved. He encouraged black people to be involved. He had Mexicans being involved. He had people from all over being involved, you know. Another, another of my, my heroes, you know, who's, who's radical in what he does is William Carey, you know, who went to India from England. You know, he left school at 14. He was apprenticed as a shoemaker. And he ended up going to um, India and translating the Bible into loads of different languages. He was a polyglot. He could speak loads of languages. Um, before he even left, he could speak about five languages. You know, he could speak Hebrew and Greek and English and French and, and Dutch before he, left, before he left England. And he didn't have any formal education. Then when he went to India, he, translated, he, wrote, the first, he wrote some of the Indian languages down for the first time. Nobody had ever written them down before. He wrote the dictionary for them, and then he wrote the Bible. In those, you know, he translated the Bible into those languages. You know, he was he he he, he was no slovenly slouch though I must say because um, there was one time when his um, printing press he had a printing press somebody burnt the building down with it in and he lost the whole year's work it was a translation of the Bible I can't remember into which language he lost the whole year's work when that got burnt down and so he sat down the next day and he started translating the Bible into that language again the next day and when he finished translating the Bible the next that time he said I'm so pleased because this translation was so much better than the last. You know, so, so, you know, what the enemy tries to frustrate us with and discourage us with, you know, we can't be discouraged by. I, I, I speak of these people because I want to remind us that all of us individually are valued. Whether, whether we see ourselves as educated or not, whether we see ourselves as, of high status or not, whether we see ourselves of... You know, our, we don't see the purpose that God has in our lives yet, or maybe we do. We all have a part to play. So we mustn't disqualify ourselves through discouragement, because discouragement makes us disqualify ourselves. So that's, that's the numbers thing, the oneness that Jesus seeks us to get to. And we are getting to that oneness more and more. And we just need to keep encouraging each other, keep talking to each other, keep having fellowship with each other. You know, and keep praying together. The other thing is obviously this building thing. You know, you may be asking to where to next, you know. No one here, as far as I know, knows where we're going next, right? Nobody here knows where we're going next. Jesus does, but we don't. Um, and we might feel limited by that, you know, and we might feel discouraged by that, or we might think, oh, no, not again. We're kind of moving on again, da-da-da-da-da, you know. And... We need to be careful because at this point we could engage in real leper thinking, you know. Those four lepers there are just like, well, we might as well just go and see what the Assyrians, what the Arameans rather have, you know, got, you know, because we're going to die there. We might as well die there than die here, you know. That's a real, a, a real kind of hopeless thinking. God, God somehow rewards it in his grace, but it's a hopeless kind of thinking. It's a like fear-based apathy. It's a kind of shrug of the shoulders or a kind of, I might, well, we, we might as well, or uh, I guess I suppose we should kind of thinking. The thing is, lepers are unable to discern touch, right? And so leper thinking is, is actually the inability to, to feel hope, you know. And so leper thinking in relation to a new building would be like, oh, we're just going to move on again to another place, somewhere random, you know, it's going to be like this, da-da-da-da-da. I want to speak into this thing of the building. I think the reason that God hasn't given us our building is because the church isn't a building. And if you think about it, most, many, many churches have a building and they become so tied to that physical structure that it becomes the foremost thing in their thinking. We've got an enormous church-related building next door to our house. Yeah, it was built for, I think, 500 trainees to train in a particular denomination. It's a training center. And, and, and I've got a friend who, who actually was involved in that training center years ago. He used to live on our street. And he just calls that particular... He's a little bit cynical. Um, I don't... I, I'm, I'm, I'm not... Um, condoning his cynicism, but he refers to it as the big property company. Because this centre, which was built for hundreds of trainees, 
has so much emphasis on this property and the properties they have. And, and the trainees, there are, only about two, two, over, there are only about two dozen trainees in there, or a dozen trainees in there at any one time at the moment, training for that particular denomination. So a centre that was built for hundreds has a, a dozen people kind of training. Our focus has to remain on the Lord and his kingdom. The Lord himself said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Yeah. And we know this. We know this isn't anything new for you guys, I know. But, you know, in the Gospels, the word kingdom, Jesus mentions it over 140 times. The word church, how many times? Does anyone know how many times the word church comes up? Three times. Three times in two chapters. Three times in two chapters. You were nearly there, Craig. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah. Three, so three times, three times Jesus mentions the word church. And the word that's used there isn't really what we think of as church now anyway. It's this word ecclesia, which comes from a Greco-Roman concept, which was the idea of the, the kind of place of governance in the marketplace. So we moved, for one reason or another, historically, many, many years ago in this country, from this idea of like church being right in the middle of the marketplace to this kind of building somewhere in town where we all get together in a holy huddle and we meet, you know, and nobody ever kind of darkens the doors. But that's not how it is, and I believe, to be honest, I believe that God wants us to have a building with an entrance from the street. Because people have to come in from the street into the building in order to meet with him. That's one thing I have, you know, from this, about this new church building that we're having. So the church is meant to be fully challenging the culture, fully challenging the culture, not besieged to the culture or surrendered to the culture, but fully challenging it. That's what Jesus' vision for the church is, the ecclesia, the group of followers who challenge every aspect of culture. If you want to read more about this, there's that book, Ecclesia, by, um, what's the name of the guy? No, it's not by Dutch Sheets. It's by, um, it's on the tip of my tongue, Ed Silvoso. Ed Silvoso. Fantastic book. It will, it will totally stir you up. I really recommend. Um, but the church, Jesus says, is, is the city on the hill that cannot be hidden. You are the light, the light of the world. You are like a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. He says, you know, you're a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. The church is that, that, that yeast which goes through the dough to leaven the dough of society. I've no doubt that the Lord is going to lead us to the right place to reside in this next season. No doubt at all. Yeah. And as he does, um, the reason he's going to do so is that he wants to grow his kingdom. And the, and, and the thing that we have to be really, really careful of is making it, keeping it about kingdom. Mm -hmm. It always has to be kept about seeking first the kingdom. Yeah. Seek first the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom. Because the easiest thing to do when you've got a building is to just look at that building and it becomes the church. Yeah, that's not how it should be. Okay, this brings me on to the second point, this idea of the fact that he's going to give us the right place. You might say, when? And let's go back to that strange passage in 2 Kings 7 and have a look at the next few verses from 5 to 7. So the lepers got up at twilight to go over to the Aramean camp. But when they came to the edge of the camp, there was no one there. For the Lord had caused the Aramean army to hear the sound of chariots and the sound of horses, the sound of a great army. They had said to one another, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come and fight against us. So the Arameans set out and fled during the twilight and left their tents, horses and donkeys, even left their camp, even left the camp just as it was and fled for their lives. Notice the timing in this passage. Interesting. The very day that the lepers leave the camp, at the very time, which is twilight, the Arameans flee and leave the camp. So if, the, if these lepers had been a little bit more proactive and had gone there a little bit earlier, then they would have bumped into a bunch of Arameans and the story would have ended quite differently from where it did. You know, The timing of the Lord is 100% right. You know, They go there at twilight just after the Arameans have left at twilight. And that, I, th I think, is a word from the Lord relating to our new church building. You know, at the right timing as a church, we're going to move. Okay, we're going to move. In fact, we've actually started making the move. 
we've started making the move. You can listen to it on Spotify or Apple Music. It's, it's um, called Refuge. It's on Common, under Commonwealth Music. It says, break forth into singing and cry out loud. Expand, expand the tents of your dwelling child. Lengthen your courts. Strengthen your stakes. You shall expand to the right and the left. That's us moving. Because when Pastor Julie talks about the sound of heaven and releasing the sound of heaven, she's not talking only about us singing the sound of heaven. She's talking about the idea, the word release means to actually bring music to people. Yeah, We bring the music to people. And it's vital that the sound of heaven is released from this place and heard beyond CCF because it's not a sound just for CCF. This is a sound to bring hope and it's to break the siege mentality which is over the church of this nation. This is what the, what, what, what the sound of heaven sounds like. It breaks the bonds of the enemies, the enemy over this nation. It brings the love of Jesus to this nation. You know, so we need to pray and keep on praying for, for, for David and for the whole group of musicians that we have because he trains our, our hands for war and our fingers for battle, right? There's loads more songs to come. There's loads more creativity to come, which the world needs to see. And well done to Victor as well on, that, on, on his release on Spotify on Monday, you know. I've been jumping for Jesus all week, yeah? <laughs> That's so good, so good. So, the second aspect of the timing we see in 2 Kings 7 in this story is the one of speed, you know. Because Elisha prophesies this abundance to the commander of the army and, he's, and, and, and the, the commander mocks it as being impossible. He says, Elisha says, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow about this time, a measure of finely milled flour will sell for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Then the royal officer on whose arm the king leaned answered the man of God and said, If the Lord should make windows in heaven for the rain, could this thing take place? The speed. You know, one day the hemmed in, around, besieged. And within 24 hours, the Lord has broken that siege and things have moved, you know. And when the timing of the Lord is right for CCF, he will move in speed to open up the opportunity that he provides for us and it will take place suddenly in his timing. And so we need to be ready for that move of, of God and we need to be alert to it, you know. God moves differently to how we would naturally move. We know that. I, I just love this story, that, that bit we see, that little snapshot we see of Jesus in John 7, where, you, you, do you remember, his brothers are saying to him, you know, the Feast of the Tabernacles is about to start, Jesus. Hey, Jesus, are you not going to go? Come on, Jesus, show yourself to the world. If you, you, you want to be famous, you need to show yourself to the world, Jesus. And, and so even his brothers are kind of digging him a little bit, you know. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going, I'm not going, you know, on your timing, guys. But he does go, doesn't he? And do you remember, it says, it says that in John 7 that he, he makes the journey on his own. So he travels like 70 miles or so from, from up there to down there to make that journey on his own. Can you imagine that journey on his own? I, I just imagine Jesus having communion with his father, experiencing the relationship of the spirit, having that li living water bubbling up, you know, flowing up from within him that he promises in that chapter. You know, that perfect communion as he walked through the countryside. That, that kind of rest that he had as he did the thing that he needed to do in his own timing, in his own way. You know, he did it in his own timing. And he appears in the temple courts and then he begins to preach and the Jews are amazed and, and perplexed. So uh, my thing is our journey out of this place into the next place, right, we just need to stay close to Jesus. We need to take that walk as if we're Jesus in John 7, right, just taking that, taking that journey, just knowing God's favour, knowing, knowing that where we're going, he's planned, and knowing what we're going to say, say, what we're going to do, where we're going to be. He has so much for us. He has so much for us. Folks, be encouraged. This brings me to the third point from my passage, and that's this aspect of abundance. 2 Kings 7, 8 to 9. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into one tent and ate and drank and carried away silver, gold and clothing and went, into, and, went and hid them in the darkness. Then they entered another tent and carried from there also 
and went and hid it. And then they said to one another, we're not doing right. This is a day of glad good news and we're silent and do not speak up. If we wait until daylight, some punishment will come upon us for not reporting it at once. So now, come, let us go and tell the king's household. I'm not suggesting we act like these lepers, by the way. Um, but this passage points to the abundance that the Israelites takes from, take from the Arameans, all given to them by a move of God, you know, and stumbled upon by a bunch of lepers. <laughs> you know, it's the funniest story because these lepers, they're not, they're not probably allowed in the city anyway, right? So they're outside the city in the first place. The Aramean army has ignored them because they're a bunch of lepers and they don't want to go too near them. And so, so God uses them to bring this abundance to the whole of Israel. But the easiest thing for us to do as we, as we go forward into this next place is to have a mindset of limitation. When we think about central London, we think, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, the prices of property in central London, you know. And particularly when we, if we, if we look at our, our bank account and our building fund, you know, and we think about the size of our building fund and the price of property and we think, oh my gosh, there's a, there's a, there's a bit of a difference there. But you know what? If we, if, if, if we were able to get a building out of our finances just tomorrow, it wouldn't be the building that God wanted for us because God wants to do a miraculous thing here with this building. He doesn't want to just kind of give us some half-hearted kind of, you know, well, you know, you can just go and buy this sort of building. This is a building which the Lord has for us. You know, it has, it has our name on it, so to speak. And he will be glorified through it. He will be glorified through it. How do I know all this? Because his plan is bigger than our plan. That's what he said to me last week. I was thinking about things, I was praying about things, and he said, Dave, my plan's bigger than your plan. I was like, yeah. <laughs> Think about his plan. I'm wearing this cap, right? No one knows what this is, right? This cap is a back to Jerusalem. Has anyone heard of back to Jerusalem? This is a mission movement started, started in the 1920s in China. It's a kind of birth in the 1920s, which Brother Yun has taken over, and it's his kind of lifetime's mission. And the idea of the Back to Jerusalem movement is to train up missionaries in China to send to every country between China and Jerusalem. And they've started that. They started in 2000. They sent 36 missionaries in 2000 to a neighboring Buddhist country. I think most of them got arrested and beaten, um, according to what they say on their website. But, you know, these guys aren't just kind of, you know, they're not just kind of little old, you know, they're powerful in the fire of the spirit. Each one of those in China, before they even left, had seen thousands of people come to Jesus through their ministry. Kind of crazy. But God's plan is so big, you know, and, and back to Jerusalem has organized, you, you know, has kind of, They've been, they've been given this vision and they've organized this strategy around it to be able to bring God's good news into the, some of the un, most unreached people groups in the world. So every time I wear this hat, I can just think of these guys who are out there doing it somewhere in the world and they're, and they're, and they're bringing the love of Jesus to people who don't know. But we don't need to go out to those countries, but you know, east, east of Jerusalem towards China because actually the people have come to us here. Yeah, people have come to us here and they're continuing to come. And whatever Suella Braverman does, they're going to continue to come because the Lord wants people to hear the good news of Jesus. Amen. That's the thing. It's like whether you agree with it, whether you disagree with it, you know, Jesus is more concerned with people hearing the good news of Jesus than he is with immigration policy. Amen. That's the thing, you know, and, and it's good. Yeah, And so Jesus has brought so many people to this city. And the reason he's brought them to this city is so that they can come to know him. And that's why we need to be in a place where we can introduce them to him. And that's why he's going to move us out of this place so that we're in that place so that we can introduce them to him. People from every nation, people from every generation. Because he needs to receive the full reward for the, for the shedding of his blood. In discipling individuals in London, we can reach nations. We can reach nations. We can reach into nations. You know, think about it. I was thinking about it just yesterday. Like, how many believers are there in Turkey? Do you know? 20 years ago, there were, about, there were, there were, about, there were under 1,000. Now there's about 8,000 believers in Turkey. Every time they find proper believers in Turkey, they try and kick them out. So there's 
200,000 people of Turkish descent in Britain, in, in London. 200,000. Yeah? And the Lord is working. Over lockdown, we heard of it. We've got a friend who's a missionary and in London, and she was saying about somebody else from that agency who had Zoom calls with 5,000 Turks on talking about Jesus. Yeah. Zoom calls during lockdown. That's an amazing thing, right? So there's only 8,000 believers, Turkish believers in Turkey, but there's 200,000 Turks in London who need to know Jesus so that they can go back into 80 million people in Turkey and preach to them. Okay, and that's what's happened in Iran, you see, because the Iranian church is kind of going through this huge kind of, you know, massive revival. That didn't come from nowhere, guys. Go to the Iranian church in West London and you'll see that those guys have been praying for it for years and equipping people for years and discipling that nation for years. And so it's no surprise to us, really, that Iran is on fire for Jesus. (coughs) Think about Somalia. There's one. Yeah. How many people, how many Christians are there in Somalia? Do we know? We don't even know because they're so few and they have to be so quiet because of the persecution that, um, that uh, we don't even know how many there are. There's a few hundred max. There's 70,000 or so Somalis in London. 70,000 Somalis in London. You know, Think of it when some of those guys, men and women, find out about Jesus and when, and when they really, really meet with Jesus and they encounter him and then they can go into their culture here and as that culture here becomes, you know, reached with the gospel, then we see, we see it go back over to Somalia. And there's other places, there's so many other places, right, that we, we just scratch the surface, just a little scratch on the surface. But Jesus has a plan in calling the nations to London. You know, and Jesus has a plan of raising Commonwealth in relation to the nations in London. So how how are we to receive what God has for us? I've just got a few things before I end. Most obviously, let's keep our focus on Jesus. Then let's build each other up in love. You know. Then let's realise that we're there, you know, we are there for all people. There's not one single person who doesn't qualify as someone for whom Jesus died. You know, nobody, nobody, however crazy they may look or however difficult their circumstances may look, Jesus has died for every person who chooses to follow him, but they can't choose if they don't know. The next thing we need to do is we want to break off any poverty limitations that we have. This kind of, any poverty mentality that we have in our hearts and as a church. That's really, really key. Break off any poverty mentality that we have. You know. And if you want to find out more about poverty mentality, Chris Vallotton wrote a book about it um, called something like Poverty, what's it called? Poverty Riches Wealth or something like that. It's a, it's a great resource to kind of help us break some of those things that have been spoken over the church for years by people who have been misinformed. Let's not focus on our resources, but let's use our resources well. Because as, as Jesus multiplies the little that we have, we can take care to give him all the glory. But do you remember in the feeding of the 5,000, he got the 12 disciples to, to pick up the broken pieces of bread, um, to, you know, and they each picked up a basket. He was teaching them, you know, teaching them about the value of what he does. And so let's take care to give testimony to each other. And lastly, let's continue to use our gifts to build in creative ways to build his kingdom, you know, to build his kingdom, you know, because that's super powerful. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be given, shall be added to you. Jesus says, I'm giving you a new commandment that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus says to his disciples, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So as we love each other and we reflect the light of Jesus, he's going to make us visible to the world for his glory. Amen.
Amen. I'm going to just pray for us, and then we're... Father, I thank you that your plan is bigger than our plan. Father, be magnified in this place. May your son be magnified in this place. May your son be magnified in this place, in among us, Lord. We lift him up and we just say, to you be all the glory. Praise be to, to our rock, our strength. Praise be to you, our salvation. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that your faithfulness, you know, your faithfulness is, is never changing, Lord. You're the same yesterday. You're the same today. You're the same forever. Thank you, Lord, that you have called us to be like a city on a hill which cannot be hidden, Father. Help us to each individually be like that city on the hill which cannot be hidden, Lord, just bringing your light into every circumstance, Lord, that light of the world that you have given. You say you, you are the light of the world, but then you say that we are the lights of the world. Lord, help us to spread your light in every circumstance we go into, Lord. May we walk with boldness, Lord. May we walk with clarity, Lord. I break off from anybody in this congregation, in this fellowship, who, who's here and even people who are not here today I break off discouragement in the name of Jesus I break off frustration in the name of Jesus I break off the things that have been, have been caused by discouragement in the name of Jesus cynicism I break you off in the name of Jesus I, I break you off in the name of Jesus I declare you must go from here in the name of Jesus skepticism I, I, I say nothing I, I say you will say nothing in this place you are banned from talking in this place get out of this place in the name of Jesus I break off despair in the name of Jesus I say no to despair in the name of Jesus I say no to confusion in the name of Jesus and Lord I break the, the, I break the peripheries Lord the walls around our thinking I say, I say no to these walls in the name of Jesus smash them up, tear them down we smash them up and we tear them down in Jesus' name. And we say, Lord, there isn't a horizon to our thinking because, Lord, you're the God who looks down on earth and you see the entirety of the earth and every person in it because the earth is, who, is what you have created it to be, Lord. And I thank you, Lord, that your, your um, message is the earth-shattering, earth-changing message of bringing light in to every, every corner of culture and society, Lord. And Father, I just pray for those among us, Lord, who, who work in different areas, in business, Lord, being entrepreneurs, Lord, in the health service, Lord, in, in education, Lord, in each of those seven mountains, Lord. Lord, we just lift before you in the arts and entertainment and media. Lord, we lift before you each of these people, Lord, and, we, and I thank you, Lord, for each of them, Lord. And I thank you, Lord, that you place them in the place where you want them to be, Lord. And I, and I thank you for the boldness that they have to declare who you are into that place, Lord. I thank you, Lord, that you're bringing darkness to light. You're changing darkness to light. There's no darkness where you are. Because darkness and light cannot coexist. And so, Lord, I thank you that you're doing that in each of our workplaces, Lord. In each of our families, Lord. And in this fellowship, Lord, you are bringing, bringing light. And Lord, we thank you that there's more light, there's more revelation, Lord. There's, there's more glory, there's more glory, there's more glory, there is more glory because you are the glory, Lord Jesus. And you, there is always more of you, Lord. So I unfetter, I smash the chains of our thinking in the name of Jesus. I just smash, I just smash these mindsets, these small, narrow mindsets in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, I, I, I rip them up and I tear them down and I say no to them and I just say expansive vision for this earth in the name of Jesus. And Father, we remember the Back to Jerusalem mission and the missionaries of Back to Jerusalem and all those other mission agencies, Lord, that you have sent out over the globe. And Lord, I re we remember, Lord, we, we, we lift those, those men and women up, Lord, and we say, Lord, may they serve you in power. And may they see you in glory. May they see your glory move in each, in each place that you've put them, Lord. That that Buddhist nation, for example, that they went into in 2023 years ago, those 36 missionaries that you sent from China, Lord, that that Buddhist nation will be turned upside down and around, Lord, and it will become known as a Christian nation, Lord, because, Lord, you are good. May they disciple nations. May we disciple nations, Lord. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 amen.
Incidentally, if any of you are going to start a mission training program, these guys do one. And in their mission training program, they, they, they teach their missionaries how to get out of handcuffs and how to jump out of first floor windows um, so that they can um, escape what they need to escape from at the time they need to, to do so. so. So, you know, they're hardcore guys, you know, so let's remember them. Bless you guys and have a fantastic week. We believe you've really enjoyed this message. For further information, visit www.commonwealthchurch.org and feel free to join us on any Sunday 